Trump and that server. Privacy by design. And a recap of the ISMG Toronto Cybersecurity Summit. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. Well, it's been quite a week in cybersecurity, and once again, we're back on the subject of nation-state election meddling, whistleblowing, and yes, Hillary's emails and that elusive server. So tell us more about this case of deja vu all over again. Here's ISMG's executive editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, with a story. You were always on my mind. Those are the words of the famous tune, of course, sung by Elvis and others. But it also applies to a mystical server often mentioned by U.S. President Donald Trump. On Wednesday, the White House released a non-verbatim summary of a July 25th call between Trump and Volodymyr Zelensky, the newly elected president of Ukraine. During their 30-minute telephone call, Ukraine's president tells Trump that his country is eager to purchase more U.S.-built anti-tank missiles. Trump reportedly replies, quote, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows a lot about it. I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say CrowdStrike. I guess you have one of your wealthy people. The server. They say Ukraine has it. End quote. The favor Trump is seeking appears to involve an investigation into former Vice President Joe Biden and his family. Biden, of course, is seeking the 2020 Democratic nomination for president. On Thursday, Congress released a declassified letter from a U.S. government whistleblower who alleged that the White House had attempted to prevent the contents of Trump's phone call with Zelensky from becoming known by hiding the call transcript, not for the first time, in a special computer system reserved for code-level national security missions. The whistleblower said that Trump had ordered the U.S. government to cease providing all military aid to Ukraine until it completed its corruption investigation into Biden. The whistleblower added that there's no sign Ukraine has launched any such investigation. No doubt the nuances of the call and the whistleblower's warning will be vigorously debated during the upcoming House impeachment hearings against Trump. Meanwhile, from a cybersecurity perspective, what's up with CrowdStrike? The company says it has no idea. Thomas Ridd, a professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins University, says that based on the call summary, Trump seems to be referencing a number of different conspiracy theories. Ridd says none of them appear to have any basis in reality. Trump's focus on the server is interesting. This isn't the first time he's referred to the server. So let me just say that we have two thoughts. You have groups that are wondering why the FBI never took the server. Haven't they taken the server? Why was the FBI told to leave the office of the Democratic National Committee? I've been wondering that. I've been asking that for months and months, and I've been tweeting it out and calling it out on social media. Where is the server? I want to know, where is the server, and what is the server saying? With that being said, all I can do is ask the question. That's Trump in a July 2018 press conference. He's responding to a question about whether he'd come down hard on Russia, over its ongoing hack attacks against the U.S. At first, he changes the topic instead to the Democratic National Committee. What happened to the server? What happened to the servers of the Pakistani gentleman? This appears to be a classic crisis management tactic. Deny everything, admit nothing, and make counter-accusations. 
And what about the server? In fact, there were more than 150 of them. After the DNC was hacked in 2016, it called in CrowdStrike to investigate the incident. The private cybersecurity firm did so, blaming the attack on two Russian government hacking teams. According to court documents later filed by the DNC, to expunge attackers from the DNC's systems, CrowdStrike had to decommission 140 DNC servers and rebuild more than 10 others. The DNC shared the full results of CrowdStrike's investigation with the FBI to aid the U.S. government's national security probe, which backed the private cybersecurity firm's findings and concluded that Moscow was behind the attack. In other words, there were a lot of servers. They were all located at DNC headquarters. And Russia hacked them. Nevertheless, Trump continues to suggest that maybe Moscow hacked the DNC, maybe it didn't. He also continues to ask about the server. Trump, in his July call with Ukraine's president, suggests this mythical server is in Ukraine. So, is this a heartfelt belief? Is this deflection? Whatever it is, for Trump, the server seems always to be on his mind. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. There's a certain inevitability that privacy regulations are only going to become more stringent and universal in the wake of precedents such as Europe's GDPR. Developers will therefore have to be at the forefront of understanding these regs and building apps that have privacy baked in by design. ISMG's managing editor, security and technology, Jeremy Kirk, has the story. Technology companies are coming under greater scrutiny over their privacy practices. But since the mid-1990s, there's been a concept on how to ensure that applications and services don't infringe on privacy. It's called Privacy by Design, and I recently spoke with Jason Kronk, a lawyer and privacy expert. He authored the book Strategic Privacy by Design, which aims to educate organizations how to ensure their service maintains privacy while accomplishing business goals. Kronk says the technology industry's relationship with privacy is similar to the automobile or airline industry's relationships with safety decades ago. The controls haven't been built in yet to prevent slip-ups. Jason Kronk. Privacy is similar. At this point, most developers, most software engineers don't understand privacy, don't understand the risk of what they're doing. Uh, And so you need those privacy engineers and those privacy specialists who are helping them uh, and providing some guidance. There's another problem around privacy. The public often doesn't fully understand how their data is being collected, used, traded, or sold. Facebook's quagmire with the Cambridge Analytica scandal and subsequent $5 billion fine from the U.S. Federal Trade Commission has raised more awareness. But technology companies have never been terribly forthright about how they handle data, which obfuscates just how sensitive and detailed the data collected can be. Kronk says he educates companies about this information asymmetry to help bridge the expectation gaps. So again, I think there's a, a, a huge imbalance. And, and so when you say the public has been awakened, uh, again, I think they're starting to learn what organizations are doing with information that are not obvious or not apparent to them uh, from what they would expect the organization to be doing. So how can organizations embrace privacy by design principles? Take privacy impact assessments. Those are designed to provide feedback on the risks that an application poses. But Kronk says, unfortunately, those are often done after the application has been developed as a post hoc justification for what they've created. 
He counsels organizations to evaluate privacy risks while an application is being developed. Those risks can often be forecasted in advance. For example, if a company is going to be sharing data with a third party, there might be a risk that the third party could use the data for something other than its intended purpose. That's often referred to as secondary use of data and can violate privacy statutes. Kronk again. So what is the likelihood, again, we're looking at privacy risk, what is the likelihood that the organizations you're sharing information with will commit this privacy violation of secondary use. That's the impact. And, and do that kind of assessment, again, beforehand, before you share the information. Kronk recently wrote a white paper describing the hypothetical development of a chess game that matches people of similar abilities. It shows that even designing a simple game that maintains the privacy of players and defends the game against cheats is much more involved. Kronk says privacy considerations can influence the design of an application from the onset. Thinking about privacy up front can change the dynamics of, of what you're building. Uh, it can really suggest different avenues for achieving the same goal. Really understanding what you're building can imply what the privacy characteristics of what you're building, what you can do with that. As regulators come down harder on tech companies, think GDPR in Europe, it's likely that companies will be taking on concepts such as privacy by design to heart. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Finally, I'm just back from this year's ISMG Cybersecurity Summit in Toronto, and what a show. Two days of a packed agenda of discussions, interviews, executive roundtables, and the inevitable poutine and fries. I had the chance to sit down with Tom Field, ISMG's SVP of Editorial, and the architect of the show's speaker agenda about the event, and how it compares and contrasts with some of the others that we've conducted in 2019. Here's Tom. Nick, it's, it's interesting you, you say compare and contrast because it probably was just over a month ago that we were doing this, our biggest event of the year in New York City. And then we come right back and do probably our second biggest event of the year in Toronto. Cities that geographically aren't that far apart, but in terms of summits, there's some significant differences. Really, it's just a delightful event. It was probably the sixth time that we've done one of these summits in Toronto. It's one of our most successful events of the year. We had our largest crowd ever in Toronto. And I would say that the topics that we spoke about, ranging from third-party risk to DevSecOps, so identity to emerging technologies and the insider threat and privacy, really covered the range of concerns, not just for security and fraud leaders in Toronto, but for those throughout the world. And it was a good representative discussion of what matters most to Canadian security and fraud leaders. Yeah. So any, any standout sessions as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I think that our attorneys did a terrific job. Imran Ahmad did a review of events and incidents and litigation over the past year that really are influencing what security leaders will be talking about in 2020. And attorney Ruth Promislow went through and gave security leaders specific questions they need to be asking their organizations to ensure that they're covered in all the right ways, not just with their own security posture, but those of the partners that they work with. So I think they gave us a good legal framework. We also had some terrific sessions ranging from, oh, Kenrick Bagnall with the City of Toronto Police Service talking about cybercrime trends and working with law enforcement, to Olivera Zarzalo, the Chief Security Officer, with 
Huawei Canada talking about the emerging 5G technology and security concerns there. So top of mind, those were some of the ones that jumped out as really reflective of the security concerns, not just for the Canadian audience, but for the global audience as well. Yeah. A real spectrum of topics as well. And we covered, I mean, uh, insider threat, deception technology, 5G, as you mentioned. Um, even, again, uh, interesting session by uh, Matthew Kane from Solaris Intelligence on, again, how to how to read uh, facial expressions and, and micro ticks and so on for, for deception, which was, I thought, fascinating. That was a very popular session. You know, and, I, and the other thing I would mention is that of the 25 or so speakers that we had exclusive of you and I, 10 of them were women. Yes. And I don't like to draw attention to that just for the sake of, hey, women in cybersecurity, look at what we're doing. But draw attention to it that increasingly this is becoming the rule and not the exception. Yes. And I think that diversity of, of on our stage and the diversity of topics that we discuss is really to the benefit of the industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, it, it shouldn't be something we have to point out. I don't want to do it in a patronizing way. I don't want it to be, hey, look, cybersecurity, women, look at what we're doing. But when you see a panel of all women, and it's incidental that they're right. all women, right. that's particularly encouraging. Yes, fantastic. Um, so, I mean, Tom, uh, no rest for us, really. So what's the next summit you're off to? Well, we've got a couple of coming up in October. There's one that's going to be our first ever cybersecurity summit in Portugal, in Lisbon. That's going to be on the, hold me, the, right here, the 15th of October. And one week later, we'll be back in London for our annual cybersecurity summit there. Uh, not long after that, we'll be back in Mumbai for our annual event. So I'm encouraged that we're going to be visiting three separate countries next, and then we'll come back and wrap up our series in the U.S. in Washington, D.C. in early December. All right, well, safe travels, and I'll see you in D.C. in a couple of months. Look forward to it, Nick. Thanks as always. Take care. Thank you. Bye for now. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.